uh, and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Be, uh, uh, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. That the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is God's word. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, what a joy it is indeed to draw near to you, to hear from you. As we listen to your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit, our Father, will give us understanding, will convict our hearts, will um, draw us to yourself, open the eyes of our understanding. Bring us before you and give us hearts, O Father, that are ready not only to hear your word, but also to do it. May you be glorified in every way. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen. Overcoming worldliness. The, the, the word overcome means to succeed with, with, with dealing with a problem or to, to defeat, to overpower or overwhelm an enemy. As Christians, we, we must understand that God called us to holiness. God called us in holiness. But, but Satan and his goons, his demons, and sin are at an all-out attack against God's agenda for the holiness of his children. But the Bible calls us to fight sin and overcome in the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul says. He puts it clearly in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. And he says this. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Do you see that there's this war that is happening, this, this, this war between the flesh and the spirit? They are opposed to each other. And in that opposition, the Bible is calling us to overcome sin and worldliness. James has dealt with worldliness as we read from um, chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, up until verse 6. Making he, 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 he warned Christians against worldliness, making its way into the lives of believers and showing the negative effects of, of worldliness here. He says that when a believer embraces worldliness, he or she becomes affected in three ways. Worldliness affects God's community, first of all. It affects the way we relate to each other, right? There are quarrels and fights because worldliness has um, made its way in. Uh, secondly, it, it, it destroys um, our prayer lives. It affects our prayer lives. It, it either renders you prayerlessness, uh, prayerless, or it pollutes your prayer life by rendering it irreverent or, or, or uh, making it a monstrosity. In other words, it takes your prayers and, and, and makes them unbiblical. And thirdly, worldliness affects our relationship with God. 
when we embrace the world, we are um, at the same time making ourselves enemies with God. But James does not leave believers without hope, right? Remember that um, we, we saw verse 6, he reminds us that God gives more grace to the humble. And in light of the fact that God is the giver of grace, James makes a call for Christians to overcome worldliness in the grace that God gives. Note, note that therefore, um, that is in verse 7, he says, submit yourselves therefore, that, that um, conjunction, um, um, what, what, what James is saying by it is that because God is because God gives more grace, you are called and enabled to overcome worldliness. In other words, you are not doing it in your own strength, but in the strength that is provided you in Christ Jesus. So what James does here, he, he shows us two attitudes we need to develop in our fight against worldliness. Two attitudes we need to develop in our fight against worldliness. First of all, we need to develop humility towards God. And secondly, we need to develop peace towards one another. Let us look at the first one, humility towards God. Verse 7 to verse 10. In verse 7 to verse 10, he says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In these four verses alone, there are ten commands. The, the, the thrust of these commands indicate a call to immediate action. You, 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 can, you can sense the agency in the way uh, uh, James addresses these believers. There's an agency about his word. It is a pointed and forceful way to demand action. It is a call to repent from worldliness. And, and what should be evident here is that these commands are not heavy burdens that will break the backs of those who are commanded, but they are held and lightened by the grace that God gives. The, the, the point that James is making here is this. He says, the grace of God repairs the relationship, that, uh, the, the relationship with God that worldliness breaks. You see, the, the, the purpose of sin is to leave you in the desert of despair and hopelessness. But God calls you to drink in the ever-satisfying pools of grace. You see, to drink in the pools of grace requires humility of heart towards God. Listen to what he says. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. But by submission, James is not only referring to obedience, but he's referring to surrendering your will to God, which leads obedience. Uh, this gives us a greater understanding of the monstrosity of sin. That sin is not only breaking the law of God, but sin is also choosing your will above the will of God. It is a pride that refuses to acknowledge the wisdom and authority of God. 
the, the, the submission that James is calling Christians to here is, is the willingness to lay down our rights and come under God's authority. It's a military term that means to get into your proper rank. Right? So when, when James is saying to Christians, submit yourselves to God, he's saying, get into your proper rank. In other words, considering the context, especially verse 1 and 2, quarrels and fights among believers is an indication that they have broken rank. That they have made their will authority instead of God's will. And when that is the case, brothers and sisters, peace and unity will be impossible. Because everyone wants their will to be done, so, so that there's a clash of wills, right? But when we come with our wills and, and lay them at the foot of the cross and surrender our wills to God and embrace his will, we are all embracing one will. We all have one mind. We all have one desire. It also shapes our relation to one another. The, the, the command to submit to God, when you, when, you, when you look at these verses, is followed by eight other commands. That explains what it looks like to submit. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul shows us that anger gives opportunity to the devil. When we allow anger to control us and control the way we relate to other people, we are actually giving opportunity for the devil. I don't know which one of the Puritans said this. It, it, it might probably be uh, Thomas Brooks. Um, he, he says that anger is the fires that the devil warms himself on. In other words, quarrels and fights invites the devil to sow seeds of discord among God's people. And to resist, the, the resistance that James is calling us to is to stand against, is to, to set ourselves against the devil. The idea is that when you are submitting to God, you are standing against the devil. Like a bully who sees your big brother, he will flee from you. Notice verse 8 and 9. When we come to an understanding of how worldliness affects our relationship God, with, with God, there's a sense of Holy Spirit-produced brokenness that comes upon us. There's a realization that to be far from God is to be deprived of grace. In his grace, God calls us back to himself. Listen to what he says through James. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The idea of coming near to God is that of returning to God in covenant renewal after straying. Right? 
It is, it is someone who is not working in the ways of God. Someone who is not working in the will of God. Someone who made their will authority over the will of God. But they come to this realization as the Holy Spirit opens their eyes and they see that they are deprived of, of grace because they are far from God. And so they hear the call of God saying, draw near to me. This is an idea that appears also in the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 7, um, the Bible, God says, Return to me, and I will return to you. In Hosea chapter 12, verse 6, the prophet links, Return to your God with come near to your God. In, in other words, uh, what that shows us, it shows us, um, the importance of being in a covenant relationship with God. That when the, the covenant is broken, God does not turn uh, his back on you. When, when you break covenant with God, God still calls you to come to him. You see that? Daniel Doriani explains that when we come to God, we come to worship him. We come to serve him. We come to, to meet him. We come to seek help and, and to, to gain assurance as well as to repent. And this is followed by a, a, a wonderful promise that when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. What a wonderful promise it is to know that if I draw near to God, he, he will not uh, push me away. You see, God is not like a person who pretends like they are not home when someone knocks on the door. But he's ready with arms wide open for those who will draw near to him and praise the Lord for that. He's ready. His, wide, his arms wide open. And he calls us. After we have broken covenant with him. After we have embraced the world and, and all that dishonors God. He, he still calls us to himself. Now, when we are in the presence of God... We, we develop a keen awareness of our sinful nature. We, we start to see ourselves as we should see ourselves when we are in the presence of God. Re remember Isaiah, right? When he came in the presence of God, Isaiah, who was a priest and a prophet, a priest when they went into the temple, they had to kind of they had to sanctify themselves. They had to go through the, the rituals of, of cleansing and, and, and go into the temple and, and be welcome. But but when he comes in the presence of the Lord, when he sees the Lord in his glory, uh, high and lifted up, sitting on the throne with a train of his robe filling the whole temple, he says, woe is me for I am undone he, he starts to, 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 to have a, a right view of himself in relation to God oftentimes we don't see that we are sinners not because we are clean but because we compare ourselves with other people 
right? Just think about it. If, 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 if I start comparing myself with other people, I'll, I'll, look, I'll, I'll look at uh, someone maybe probably who's a drunk, uh, a drunkard, who's someone who, who, who does things that I disapprove of, and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm actually better than that person, therefore, I'm okay. But it's the other way around, right? We do not compare ourselves, in order to know ourselves truly, we do not compare ourselves with one another, we compare ourselves to God. John Calvin, in the first uh, chapter of his magisterial work, The Institute of the Christian Religion, observes that we can never truly know ourselves without first coming to know the true character of God. I love what he says. He says this. He says, listen to this. He says, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he, he has first looked upon God's face and then succeeds from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. When we truly contemplate who God is, we are able to truly and clearly scrutinize ourselves. We see ourselves as we should see ourselves. And one short desire from a sinner who is in the presence of God is a desire to repent of sin. Cleanse your hands, James says, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. When he says cleanse your hands, he is actually not talking about literal hands. Right? He is talking about actions and deeds and he says purify your hearts again he's not talking about that cardio um, you know, the, the, the organ the, the, the cardiological organ that we need to remove it and, 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 and wash it but he is referring to motives and, and intentions that we need to cleanse our actions and deeds and our motives and actions. God does not leave it at the surface. Right? He does not just look at behavior. He, you see, the gospel is not behavioral modification. The, the gospel goes to the root of the issue. The, the, the behavior, the deeds and the actions are motivated by the motives and intentions. God goes deeper than the world goes. He speaks to double-minded people here. To, to, to be double-minded uh, is to lack integrity. It is to lack integrity. They, they pursue, double-minded people pursue two things at once. The, the service of God and the service of self. James has already warned about double-mindedness, saying that the double-minded man or woman asks and gets nothing in chapter 1 verse 8. The double-minded person is unstable. But, but godly wisdom is pure. It has clarity of purpose. And true believers are bent on one thing, to seek and to find the Lord. 
logically, a desire for clean hands and a pure heart leads to sorrow for sin. Right? We are in the presence of God and we desire clean hands. We, 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 we become sorrowful for sinning against the Lord. James it says in verse 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The idea here is that overcoming worldliness involves a changed attitude towards sin. Instead of flirting with and enjoying sin, you grieve over it. It, it breaks your heart. You, you don't find joy in it as before when you were in the world. Let me say this. A claim to faith in God without a changed attitude towards sin is a false claim. Right? If you claim to be following God, to be committed to God, but when, when, when your life is, is weighed and, 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 and scrutinized and, and, and found wanting, found the fact that you are still in sin, your claim is false. doesn't matter how you believe it, how much you believe it. It is false. A true encounter with God is characterized by a changed life. So, with these eight uh, uh, commands that are describing what it means to submit to God, James concludes um, them by the same idea that he, of the first command, submit yourself to God. He says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Right? We are to come with humility in the presence of God. Submission means we are humble before the Lord. We are not seeking our own ways. We are not seeking our own will, but we are seeking the ways and the will of God. And God in his faithfulness does not leave us does not push us back, does not turn us away, does not forsake us, but he exalts those who come to him. He exalts those who are humble before him. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's nothing that shatters the pride of man like the grace of God. Because the grace of God tells you nothing in your hand you bring is ever pleasing to God if you want him to accept you for salvation because of it. So James shows us here that when we are fighting against worldliness. We need to develop an attitude of humility towards God. But not only that, secondly, we need to have peace towards one another. And you'll notice that what he's doing, he's showing that the Christian is always 
in the, you know, for, for a Christian to be at peace with God's people, they must be, first of all, at peace with God. The, the, the problem, the, the root problem, when there are, when verse 1 is the reality, when there are quarrels and fights, the root problem is not um, what you have done to me or what I've done to you. The root problem is my relationship with God. One of the clearest indications of our humility towards God isn't the way we relate to God's people. Quarrels and fights are an indication that there's something not right in our relationship with God. Look at James here. He calls us to peace with one another, verses 11 to 12. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The, the, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one Lord giver and judge, he, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James describes here what a community that is at peace with God looks like. When we are a community, first of all, that is at peace with God, this is what will happen. He says, do not speak evil. Do not speak against one another, brothers. In other words, there's a sense of peace even among us. He, he discourages Christians from slander and gossip. You see, it, it is all too easy to speak against others. James has shown us why this is the case. Our, our tongues are, are untamed and are, in our strength, untamable. Running others down in what we say is so reflexive that we barely even know what we are do that we are when we are doing it. So we need to train ourselves to think differently about what we say. Let me say this: I believe that speaking about people is not always wrong. Speaking about people is not always wrong. We are able to speak about people when we commend them to others for their good deeds and, and godly examples. That's what Paul did, right? We are able to, to speak about people when we speak about their impact in our lives and, and in the lives of other people. And also in our desire to uphold them in prayer before the Lord. But what James is speaking against here is that the kind of is the kind of speaking that is against the person you speak about. The kind of speaking that seeks to put the person in a bad light. And that is gossip and, 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 and slender. Daniel Doriani explains that uh, explains gossip and, and, and slender by saying this. He says to gossip is to take a true story where it should not go. To slander is to create and spread false stories. Both gossip and slander are sins and cause real harm. James goes on to show us that why this is wrong. He says the one who speaks against the brother or the one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother 
speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. This is one of the, uh, those difficult passages, um, and it's not uh, immediately understandable, but you can see here that James opposes judgment. And, 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 and why does James oppose judgment? I believe that um, judgment are necessary at times. <clears throat> For example, scripture requires leaders to discern or to judge when a supposed disciple um, commits a sin and refuses to repent. In that case, that supposed disciple must be put out of the church. Again, leaders are li uh, must, must likewise judge when a teacher is guilty of such an error or, co or propounds or teaches such a falsehood that he must be confronted and possibly pronounce the false prophet or teacher and put out of the assembly. Finally, Jesus knew that judgment is sometimes necessary. He says, he told his disciples, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Right? In John chapter 7, verse 24. You can see what Jesus is doing here. He says there's a kind of judging that you must not do. Right? By mere appearance. And there's a kind of judgment that you must do with a right judgment. But, when, but, but James says here, there's, there's usually no need to judge the words or deeds of another. And, and we, should, we should attend to ourselves, rather. Jesus' point here is the same as, as, as that of, of James in this, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this in chapter 7 of Matthew. He says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In this context, James is not simply uttering a general principle. He knows that those who hear his teaching will be tempted to judge others, to point out how they have failed. So he says, don't do it. Don't criticize others. Attend to yourself. In other words, um, this kind of judgment is a judgment of thinking that you are better than others. One of the most discouraging things for a preacher to hear is when someone says to them, that was a great sermon, Pastor. I wish sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so were here to hear it. You're not hearing yourself, but what you're actually saying is this. Let me, let me clearly say this. What you're actually saying, you are saying today you are preaching to the wrong audience. We are fine. The, the people that are not fine were not here, but that was a good sermon. But the people that were supposed to hear it Unfortunately, they were not here. What you're actually saying, you're saying, I didn't need to hear God today. What God said today was irrelevant for me. It did not speak to me personally, but I know it can speak to someone I know personally. 
it is like husband and wife and there's a marriage seminar and then only the wife attends or the husband attends let me say the husband because I'm the husband and I there's this wonderful marriage seminar and I'm at the marriage seminar and then I learn a lot of things I come back and say so the things that I learn I, I hear they teach about husbands and they teach about wives but I listen when they talk about wives more and I come to my wife and say you know what Yo, I wish you were there to hear it they, they spoke about two qualities of making a husband and they spoke about 19 qualities that make a wife let me take you through the 19 qualities we think that we are better and then some people are the ones who need to hear the word more than us James does not mince his words here he says what you are actually doing you're putting yourself above the, the word of God. You are above the law. You are judging the law. You are saying the, the, the law is good for other people, but for me, I'm, I'm already better. So it's not even addressing me yet. And this is what you're doing, actually. L listen to this. In verse 12, there is only one Lord giver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? What you are actually doing is you're putting yourself in the place of God. James is fighting that idea and says, there's only one lawgiver. But when you are doing that, you're putting yourself in the place of the lawgiver. The, the lawgiver, who is God, is not given the law to address himself, right? God is without sin. God is perfect. And when you are judging against the law, you are putting yourself in the law, in the, in the place of the law given. You're saying, I'm perfect and I'm without sin. Who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, we have no right to see ourselves as better than other people. We, we, to judge rightly is not wrong, right? Because when we judge rightly, we are saying, look at what God is saying, right? Against this. But to judge wrongly is to say, why aren't you even meeting my standards? We are putting ourselves in the place of the law. So James brings these two ideas here. And he says, to overcome worldliness, first of all, we must have humility towards God. And secondly, peace with one another. But, but let me come back to this idea. You see, the, the call to overcome worldliness is not given to people that are without any help. Praise the Lord. It is not given to people that uh, I, I cannot overcome, but to people who have been forgiven and, and who have been saved from the power of sin. They are, are, are people that are unbound. They are not bound anymore. They are standing victorious, and they are standing in the, in, in the saving power of Christ, and, and, and because of the saving power of Christ, and, and the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells them, they are able to overcome worldliness. 
Romans chapter 8 verse 37 says, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. Right? We are not conquerors because we have the strength. We are not conquerors because we have the wisdom. We are not conquerors because we have the material things to conquer. We are conquerors because he loved us. Amen. He loved us. Therefore, we are conquerors. To conquer is to be victorious over an adversary. To be more than a conqueror means to, uh, to only, uh, not only to achieve victory, but we are an overwhelmingly victorious people. The win, in other words, was beyond the scope of a regular victory. When James is calling people to overcome sin, he's reminding them that they are conquerors because Christ has loved them. And because they are conquerors, they cannot allow the world to defeat them and to take them out of the will of God. Because they are conquerors, they cannot allow the devil to sow seeds of discord in their midst. Because they are over, they, they, are, they, are, they are more than conquerors, they cannot allow sin to, 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 to draw them away from God. Because they are more than conquerors, the church should be characterized by harmony, by unity, by peace, by godliness, by growth, by conformity to God's will. Amen. Lord, thank you that you call us to fight a battle that you have already won. We fight confidently, knowing that we have you a mighty warrior, great in battle. We pray that you give us the strength that we need to fight and to honor you. We pray that we will be characterized as a people that are humble towards you, that are at peace with one another. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen.